Sometimes the fun begins when the paved road ends. Chevy Silverado 2500 HD is made to work hard and play hard on the road or off. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com for details and experience life in HD. You know what's wrong with this country? Do I really have to tell you that? Everybody's so fed up and aggravated. The gas prices and inflation are going through the roof. The stock market just collapsed, tanked, and the housing market is tanking. That doddering old fool that needs a drool bucket in the White House is making Jimmy Carter look like some kind of Superman. And the politics suck. Politics sucks in Chicago, in Illinois, and everywhere. But, you know, don't be a naysayer. Why don't we remember what's good about America, what's good about this country? Let's not forget what's right about the country. Americans still appreciate those who help them. And they say thank you. And in that spirit, I'd like to say thank you, too. To the union at the Chicago Tribune Newspaper Guild. Of the paper where I once worked for, I don't know, how many decades. Until they defamed me for warning you about those Soros-backed left-wing prosecutors like San Francisco's Chase Boudin and Chicago's own Kim Fox and George Soros, who's paying for them and putting them in office. But here's the thing. Here's what I want to thank them for. Tribune Guild leadership keeps chirping away at me. Personal digs. Kind of like uh, enraged squirrels on social media. And you can almost see them. Either up on a tree or on Twitter with their tiny paws clenched in petite rage. Nothing like petite squirrel rage. And so I'd like to thank them, because my accountants tell me that their attacks keep driving subscriptions to where those subscriptions should be, to johncastnews.com. So thank you, enraged but petite angry squirrels. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Come here, angry squirrel. I'd like to give you a hug. Thank you. And come to think about it, those Soros prosecutors, Chase Boudin and Kim Fox, are in the news again. The left-wing Boudin got bounced out of office in a recall in liberal Democratic San Francisco by liberal Democrats who were sick and tired of crime. And left-wing Kim Fox, our very own Cook County's social justice warrior princess, made news too. With so much pressure on her lately, the state's attorney was reportedly involved in a one-way slap fight with her husband. All i got to say is pathetic and a little sad. Our guest today knows all about the progressive non-prosecuting catch-and-release prosecutors and the damage they cause. She's just written a column all about it for John Cass News. Her name... Hannah E. Myers. Hannah Myers is Director of Policing and Public Safety at the Manhattan Institute 
and her writing has appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Tablet, the New York Post, the Washington Examiner, New York Daily News, and, of course, City Journal. She provides frequent commentary for TV, radio, and podcasts, including CNN and Fox News. And also here, as always, is my friend and longtime co-host, Jeffrey Carlin. Jeff Carlin, executive producer at WGN Radio and the best damn producer in town. And here's some breaking news about Jeff. He's putting together a list of sponsors for the Chicago Way podcast from emails sent to John John at JohnCast News. Some of them involve my favorite product, meat. So if you own a butcher shop, and I'm, you know who I'm thinking about, and if you, I don't want to see you complaining to me about in a two week, in a couple weeks when we start listing the sponsors. Don't tell me you didn't have your chance because, well, we gave you that chance, and because, well, don't you want Jeff to get paid? Cat food is going up too. And me, I'm John Cass, husband, father. Griller of various proteins, editor-in-chief of your favorite website for common sense opinion, johncastnews.com, where we run guest columnists often like Hannah Myers, Corey Franklin, Greg Gansky, Jay Levine, Pat Hickey, and also Mike Hooley Hoolihan, among others. And where are you with the angry squirrels of the Tribune Guild chattering at me? <laughs> chirping at me, chirping in rage, and Kim Fox and Chase and Boudin licking their wounds as the people grow sick and tired of the lawlessness? You know where you are. You can see yourself standing there. On the broken cobblestones, on that boulevard of broken dreams, on the Chicago Way podcast on WGN+. Look, the, the Chicago Way is a deep cultural phenomenon. It's the Chicago Way. The Chicago Way. That's the focus. In a tower by the river, there lived a man. There was a man who took a stand. With pen and paper in his hand, defeating foes in every ward with a pen more mighty than the sword. No escape from his ink lasso in a tower by the river, Castle. Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun, he sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. As promised. Hannah E. Myers of the Manhattan Institute to talk about her essay on Chase Boudin, Kim Fox, and the pro- progressive prosecutors who've been sent to us by the hard left. Among these, Larry Krasner of Philadelphia, Alvin Bragg of New York. And I just have a question, Hannah, if I may. Yes, please. Well, first, welcome, and uh, thank you. Thanks, welcome. What does all this mean to to the average person who 
follows the law mm-hmm. and does not like to be threatened by thugs and barbarians. What what is what is uh, he or she supposed to make of it? Well, they should be delighted by the recall um, because I, I think this is going to be a very big uh, moment in in the progressive prosecution movement nationwide. Um, and I think part of it, when you when you think about the average person that likes the law and obeys the law and doesn't want thugs on their street or um, you know to feel at risk of violence on the street. It's a lot easier to, to understand what police do and the role of police. I, I think they're very present. You just know intuitively. You play cops and robbers. I think prosecution is a little bit more obscure. You don't necessarily think about it every day. You don't see prosecutors. You don't play prosecutors versus criminal uh, attorneys, uh, defense attorneys. Um, and uh, so I think it's easy not to understand how important it is that just as you need a police enforcing the law and taking a stance against crime, that is the role of prosecutors is to represent the people uh, against criminals and criminal offending. And progressive prosecutors like Kim Fox, like Tessa Boudin, like Marilyn Woolsby and um, Larry Krasner and George Gascon, um, you know, define it differently and see their role as a kind of a, a balancer who, you know, counts it as a win to have fewer criminal convictions, uh, you know, th- that their office can can tally, um, you know, fewer, fewer, sen- lower sentencing, um, redefining anti-social activities like, um uh, prostitution or trespassing or resisting arrest, redefining those as not criminal, something that you're not going to prosecute just across the board. Um, and to define that as part of their role uh, and how they pursue justice. Well, that is completely at odds with the traditional role of a prosecutor, which is really just one big role. And that is to fight crime um, and make make sure that you're representing the victims of crime and representing communities and keeping them safe. You sound, it sounds like I'm speaking to a radical <laughs> because you, you're, you're talking about, you're talking about uh, the role of prosecutors should be prosecuting crime. And, and that's not the case in Chicago. And it's not the case in, in New York. It's not the case in many of the cities that we're talking about. How did the, all this come about? And you know what? I don't want to give, you know, I don't want to excite my now uh, once friendly and now angry squirrels uh, <laughs> who clench their tiny paws in, in rage against me and go on Twitter and, you know, add to my uh, list of subscribers for John Cast News because every time they attack me, the pe- more people come on. But now I'm now I'm, I'm lost. I, lo- I lost myself. <laughs> well, in how did how did this come about? How did we yes, go from the traditional, you know, prosecutor right, yeah. as yeah. man of the law to prosecutor as forgiver of all and redefiner of all crimes? Um, yeah. How did we? How did we? How did we get there? You know, I, it was over the course of a number of years, and I think largely, you know, you did see. Uh, rich progressive donors who wanted to see these changes, but couldn't couldn't get them passed through the legislative process. You know, couldn't uh, um, 
say, you know, make shoplifting no longer a criminal offense or no longer prosecutable. Uh, That's one of Jeff's favorites. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when he's uh, shopping with Christine and a, and a gang comes in to smash. Uh, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. You know, and, it's, well, and, it's, and we talk about it, too. It's this nearsightedness about it, like the idea that you're saying, well, we couldn't, we couldn't pass it through law because uh, that's process. Because we don't either, have the votes. Right. Well, it's either too slow or we can't control enough people to swing to our, our ideals. So then we push it through. And then what are the repercussions? And you kind of laid out in the piece you wrote for John's cast news. It's it's this idea that that shoplifting rates are through the roof, that carjacking mm-hmm. rates are through the roof, that you know violent crimes are through the roof. And it's in 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 primarily these cities. But do we I mean, is is, is there a mounting of of uh, I hate to use the word counteroffensive, but there's a, a countering to this type of mindset that, hey, look, all of a sudden cause effect. Maybe we should really think about what we're doing or what our cause is, if this is going to be the effect. Is there any of that going on besides recall? You think within within among progressive prosecutors, is there a rethinking or among the people who sort of idly voted them in thinking this sounds nice? Oh, I can't imagine progressives are, are moving backwards in any way. So I would say <laughs> really among the the, the, the the voting public or even you know <laughs> conservative groups. I mean, I, I haven't really seen too many star standouts, but I feel like they, they, they have to be making hay out of this. Absolutely. Um, and I think that it's a process, you know, first it was just that, that everyone sees this happening in front of them. You know, you can, it doesn't matter at a certain point what a local district attorney says about what's happening. Mm-hmm. If you know that if you see, you know, like you do, Jeff, people shoplifting right under your nose when you're shopping and then you see that same pharmacy or yeah. whatever, close, you know, you know, and, you know, if you have citizens app or whatever, you know how many people are getting shot, how close to you. Um, so I think that's, that's a huge component of it. And then I think people are starting to push back at the data that is coming out of these district attorney's offices, which, you know, thus far, it's been very easy and malleable for them to kind of represent data any which way. We've seen that so much in New York where, oh yeah, um, yeah, DA, DA Bragg, Alvin Bragg here in New York said, you know, there's only a 4% reoffending rate on people who are out pre-trial, right. you know, but he's looking at, it's a snap, it's a month by month where you're looking at the snapshot of how many people who are out pre-trial have reoffended within that given month, not looking at how many people who are arraigned that month will reoffend within the period of time before the pre-trial. Um, similarly, uh, in the state legislature, people who are really for bail reform here in New York, just, you know, sort of parallel to your bail reform there in Illinois, um, would say, well, there's only a one or 2% reoffending rate um, uh, among uh, offenders. Uh, and what they're doing is they're looking at Everyone who gets arrested for any kind of crime, misdemeanors, first time offenders, people who in no universe would ever have been held on bail to begin with because it's such a minor offense and grouping them all together, um, you know, and looking at the period of time, even after there's no longer pending cases. And then out of all that saying, well, it's only one percent reoffending. But we all know, especially at this point, you know, uh, after years and years of rigorous criminology uh, and and really studying crime and, and crime data, that it's a small percentage of people who reoffend and reoffend and reoffend and are violent reoffenders. Uh, and among and among those people who are the population who are the most touched by things like bail reform, because so many of the crimes that they 
commit are no longer bail eligible. Um, and so even though it's immediately apparent that these are dangerous individuals who will reoffend again and again and again, there's no way to keep them in pretrial. We see that in New York. We see that in Chicago, um, you know, especially since Kim Fox, I, uh, you know, with some of the changes that she did can take a long time to decide if something's even going to be a felony. And in the meantime, uh, offenders are out on the street and they're going to reoffend, you know, and that and when you look at the data around those types um, of reoffense rates among that population, that really is the population that you need to be measuring to say, is this is this criminal justice reform actually making us less safe? Um, and you see, you know, 40% reoffending, 50% reoffending, things that are bananas, um, but mm-hmm. not unintuitive when you think about it in those terms. And we're certainly seeing more and more of a push toward collecting data. And in fact, um, my Manhattan Institute did a, uh, some work toward a new bill that's been introduced in Congress. Um, that's uh, an amendment to the 1968 um, uh, Crime Control uh, Bill Act that um, will mandate that for local district attorneys who are getting federal funds, they have to report on XYZ data coming out of their office. And that's a direct, you know, try a federal policymaker response to to progressive prosecution to try to hold them to account for actual public safety impact of their policies on on their communities, which otherwise they have a lot of leeway to represent and misrepresent at will. And it's so sad that a prosecutor would be trying to minimize the the impact of crime on their communities when it's you know they should be the the warrior and staff bearer out front saying this will not stand you know we have to be doing more prosecution um but a, but that's in, the situation in a paragraph i'm going to read this to everyone who i hope you've all read this by now that when this posts but here's a paragraph from hannah myers which is talking about boudin and, and so forth Boudin and his movement colleagues, such as Philadelphia's Larry Krasner and Chicago's Kim Fox, follow a different philosophy, one in which the criminal justice system does not have to be adversarial, and in which the chief prosecutor does not need to be in combat with criminal offenders. What kind of universe is that that you're describing? Because... Earlier in, in an answer to Jeff, you talked, you you suggested that people voted for these prosecutors, these catch and release progressive prosecutors, because they they felt good about themselves or better about themselves if they voted that way, mm-hmm. and then and then when they vote for them and see their cities falling apart, they they tend to uh, think in terms of adversarial. Uh, policy. In other words, the prosecutor wants to put lawbreakers in jail, and the lawbreakers, through their attorneys, don't want to go to jail. And that's the advert. That's the that's the uh, rub there, right? Right. So, and, so go on. I'm sorry. Well, that that's the system as it should work. You want that. You want that even um, that even battle between prosecutors and criminal defense attorneys, where. You know, that's how justice is actually served when you have um, equal representatives fighting to an equal degree to represent their clients, whether that's the, uh, you know, criminal defendant or the people. And what we've seen in, you know, amongst uh, 
progressive prosecutors is that they are just as interested in representing the defendant. And and it's it's a it's a massive breakdown. And, you know, one of the saddest parts is it is very moving for people to try to, you know, we all want to be more compassionate toward everyone, including offenders. And the idea that someone's whole life is derailed because of bad, bad decisions. Um, But in the long run, there's so many people not getting served when there's not a functioning criminal justice system. You know, you see that in San Francisco so vividly because so much of the, you know, 500% rise in shoplifting um, is by people with drug addictions who are then also, you know, there's, there's so little prosecution of drug dealing and um, illegal drug offenses. There's people shoplifting from pharmacies that setting up rings, you know, fencing rings to sell the goods because they're addicts to buy drugs. You know, the, the overdose rate is up 80% here in New York for similar reasons. It's up in, up in San Francisco, uh, you know, astronomically. And while Chesa Boudin says, you know, connecting people to services, we all know that, you know, sadly, Drug addicts, just like people with severe mental illness, often don't want treatment, won't seek treatment on their own. The criminal justice system was one of the few places where people could get help, even if they weren't able to help themselves. Um, Compulsory help. Compulsory help through judicial leverage, because... Um, when someone is given the option between jail and rehab, mandatory rehab, where, you know, if you if you fail the yeah, drug courts, which here in New York, when we sort of pioneered it, were tremendously effective. We had enormous numbers of people go through, you know, and with the with the, the threat hanging over their head of state prison, if they didn't, you know, comply with the treatment that they were mandated. Um, but that's how people got help. And, and similarly, with severe mental illness, we had such a robust program in our courts here, where we would have family members calling in, you know, getting their fam- their loved ones arrested, because they knew that they needed a certain degree of supervised treatment, because they were ill, um, you know, severely mentally ill and not getting the help they needed. And they knew that in one of these courts, there would be judicial leverage, they knew that the criminal defense attorneys would say to their clients, you know, do this, you know, get get the help you need, because otherwise you're going to go to jail. Now, defense attorneys, you know, if someone with severe mental illness is arrested, as they very frequently are, um, you know, because there is such a high degree of mental illness among violent offenders, you know, the defense attorneys do not do not push their clients to get the help. That's not their prerogative. They know these cases are going to be dismissed. Um, And so, you know, that that's it's not, you know, that that's what their role is, is just to get their clients out of jail, not to get them help. Um, and, and so the number of people who are actually making use of mental health courts has shriveled. And I think I mentioned in that piece, similarly for human trafficking courts, where in Queens, for instance, on a regular basis, there'd be 400 pending cases in human trafficking court, mostly people arrested for prostitution, while many of them, you know, themselves trafficked. And this was an opportunity for them to get an enormous amount of mandatory services, you know, for things like drug addiction, um, for all manner of rehabilitation, for health services, for, you know, social work that could include job training, you know, for things that could actually get a woman who has been exploited and who is living a horrible life um, out of that life. And, and now there's like 20 people, you know, 20 pending cases there because prostitution is no longer, um, you know, something you're going to get prosecuted for. Is this a, we're speaking, by the way, to everyone, to Hannah Myers. She's of the Manhattan Institute. She's written for many publications, New York Times, New York Post, Daily News, many others, John Cass News. 
and she's the director of policing and public safety for the Manhattan Institute. So I assume that you've been studying uh, criminology and policy for quite some time. Uh, well, I, I used to work for NYPD here in New York, um, although focusing more on, on counterterrorism cases, but uh, um, it was a great experience. I and, bet. I can, can't imagine a more active Jeff, place in the world. Jeff wants to find out. So <laughs> I mean, he doesn't want to do it. I, <laughs> I did see his file come up. Yeah. <laughs> That's so fantastic. Uh, how, what was that like? Tell us a bit about that, about that experience. Um, you know, it was, it was unique. I think like so many people who had a connection to 9-11, that, I think that, that really drew me toward counterterrorism. Uh, I was home from college, you know, here in Manhattan uh, and saw the smoke billowing up and just experienced that, that surreal thing that happened to my city. Um, And then have had family killed in in terror attacks in Israel. And, um, and, uh, you know, when I was in, I was in graduate school studying international relations and I read about uh, NYPD's intelligence um, bureau. Well, then it was a division, you know, but their intelligence work into counterterrorism. And I just thought, what an amazing way to see my city from a completely different, you know, insider view of how everything works and how, and, and, and to be able to be part of keeping them safe. Um, and, uh, and so I worked on, on investigations for, for five years, um, uh, brought, uh, one of the first state level terrorism, uh, charges to, to conviction, um, which was very gratifying. And, you know, it's, it's an amazing sense of mission that you don't really find anywhere else. It was an incredibly diverse place to work because working in, in counterterrorism, especially at NYPD, we had native language speakers from every possible corner of the yeah, earth yeah. because it's New York. So um, it's, it's the capital of the world, right? Capital of the world. So it was incredibly diverse um, and a lot of different religions uh and you know everyone just sort of very very familial there you know very teasing and very affectionate and very you know comfortable with with each other um very serious and also very goofy (laughs) um as i think when when you're working on a serious topic you know that's kind of the the atmosphere but yeah in my limited experience i found that uh people who are involved in counterterrorism and other such investigations, unlike the politi- their political counterparts, uh, the people on the street, the people in the office who are actually doing the work, are most concerned about Americans losing liberty, and they're most concerned about the Constitution and the Fourth Amendment and so forth. And uh, I've just found that uh, people on that side, not the ones who gathered to say that the Hunter laptop, Hunter Biden laptop was uh, Russian disinformation, even though it was not. But the people that actually do the work uh, are concerned about uh, the loss of liberty. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of what what you do as an intelligence analyst is to to work on the legal documents that that show, um, you know, predicate to open any kind of investigation into anyone 
you know, and that those always sort of, those almost always start out at very low level. You're not, you don't have a, an undercover agent in with somebody right away, but, you know, you're responding to a lead, to a threat, something that seems plausible. You have, you write up a legal document that shows you have, you know, scope for a, a very, you know, a circumscribed period of time and a circumscribed level of invasiveness to, to, to check out this lead and see if there's something there that's that's really a threat. And after that period of time, you know, if you think there's enough there that it warrants more investigation, then you, you know, write up a new legal document, gets reviewed by an entire bureau right. of lawyers and, and so on and so forth. You keep every document that you've ever written because it's all discoverable material at a later date. Mm. Um, and uh, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very that aspect, you know, is, has to be taken very seriously. And I, I think it's something that um, law enforcement in America has gotten much better at. Um, and certainly, you know, we were, this was mostly jihadi terrorism. Um, yes. And, you know, most of the detectives or a good, a good chunk were, you know, Muslim themselves. And, you know, it was an environment where we had a lot of respect for, for each other. And um, so you weren't going after school board, uh, School boards in uh, school mom and moms and dads opposed to uh, idiotic uh, curriculum in their local schools, right? That, that, that's not the terrorism you were concerned about. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What? Let me ask this: What what happened in this country where uh, we began to elect people to the job of prosecutor? who came out publicly and said they weren't about prosecuting. What, what does that mean? It's, it's actually really remarkable. I mean, if you think about Kim Fox being totally comfortable, if not boasting about, uh, you know, 30% dropping 30% more felony cases than her predecessor, uh, or no, dropping 30% of her felony cases, which is 50% more than, than her predecessor. Right. Changing the threshold for retail felony retail theft from three hundred to a thousand dollars of stolen merchandise a day a day right a day (laughs) bonkers Um, and saying well you know this is all I'm just going to focus on violent crime I think a lot of it is losing sight of the the uh, how connected different types of crime and different types of behavior are in a community losing sight of both that. You know, criminals don't usually start out by waking up one day, having been a law abiding citizen for, you know, how 25 years and then just shoot somebody that there's often just an escalating amount of crime and a, and a sense of emboldening when you get away with crime, when, when the deterrence from crime are taken away, you, you know, you're not going to get you're probably not going to get arrested. I mean, shoplifting under Chesa Boudin by 2021 like 19% of shoplifting reports resulted in an arrest, largely because I think police became demoralized with the idea that they were going to arrest anybody because they weren't going to get prosecuted. Um, So, you know, there's an emboldening among criminals when they know that these deterrents aren't there, they're not going to get arrested. They're not going to get charged. They're not going to get sentenced. They're not going to get convicted or incarcerated, not, you know, or whatever the sentence appropriate for what their crime is. And it escalates and it escalates. And I think, um, you know, there's a downplaying of how harmful even low-level offenses are on a community, which is which is um, devastating and just doesn't jive with the reality. Uh, 
we did a poll in the 20 fastest growing cities um, in the fall and found that the majority of Black residents in these cities wanted more policing of quality of life crimes because nobody likes littering and graffiti and public urination, you know, in front of their their house or where their kid is walking to school or, you know, the, this is their People community. shooting up right in front of the, where the kids are going in, into class. When they're, Absolutely. Like, in um, second grade. Yeah. The, no one and it, and it breaks down trust in a community, which I think, you know, is the other side of the coin when we think about broken windows policing and, and the impact that it had in New York and elsewhere that focused on lower level offending. And I think it's it's come to be associated with like zero tolerance policing where it's so carceral and, and draconian, but really it's a way of thinking about increasing the amount of trust in a community and how much people are willing to intervene if they see that there's something wrong happening exactly. in the community, how much there's an expectation that people are going to follow the rules. And it does demand that there is a, a robust, um, consistent criminal justice system backing backing those rules up. But to a large degree, you kind of, you wind it up and let it run on its own. And that's what we saw here. You know, once you build up that, that level of expectation within a community and you build this sense of communal trust and this willingness to go out at night and a willingness to, you know, yeah, again, intervene if you see something wrong and, a, and an expectation that you will be safe walking down the street. No one is going to randomly sucker punch you or push yeah. you in front of it on a subway platform, um, off a subway platform. It, it, it then starts deterring people from committing even lower level offenses. As long as that criminal justice system still exists, it becomes a lot less active. Here in New York, we saw, um, you know, just as murders went from, you know, over 2000 a year down to 270 or something uh, over a period of time. The same period of time we went from having 22,000 people in jail in New York City down to something like 7,000. And that wasn't with an increase in crime. That was just the gains of having established this level of community trust. And you do need a reliable criminal justice system to back it up. But this isn't about making police the overlords of everyone. This is giving communities the freedom to, to go about their lives and to thrive and also giving offenders a push away from offending, you know, vulnerable young people, showing them, eh, this isn't going to end well for you. Why don't you do something productive? Um, I don't want them near me. I don't want them near my children. I don't want them near my wife um, when they're like not taking the public transportation because I don't know who does now and you can't afford gas. And if you get on the, on the L and you try to defend somebody attacks a girl and you try to defend her, history shows us that 15 or 10, 20 or 10, 15 mm-hmm. guys jump you and st- stamp your face into a, uh, a pulp on the platform and we know this and and they don't do anything about it and the next time you're on hannah or if you ever want to write another <laughs> which i love that piece uh you know i'd like to know maybe briefly if you could what about how does the rise of this beat in newspapering even though newspapers are hurting and dying the criminal justice beat and calling just calling it by that name, criminal justice, how does that impact coverage and how does that shape the the news narrative that comes out? Gosh, well, we've certainly seen a, an enormous shift in the narrative over the last, say, five years away from sympathy for 
victims of crime toward sympathy for offenders. And that's been painted so widely in, in media coverage about crime. Um, you know, it's also very impacted by, by social media and by viral videos where it's just so much more easier to, to capture one moment of police misconduct, which is never acceptable, but to right. capture one and, and have it magnified countrywide, no matter how rare it is, and to capture, you know, gazillions of mundane to extreme acts of uh, good policing and heroism, and, and even harder to capture how important just basic law abiding is in the larger um, ecosystem of communities. Uh, it's so easy to just take it for granted as something that, um, you know, and, and certainly there's a, a huge amount of a narrative about race and about crime that I think has redounded so much to the, to the negative for, for Black communities, for Black Americans, for, you know, who are so much the victims of violent crime, um, and and that they're narrative the, has been the very ones hard to being killed. Right. Yeah, yeah, the people it, are being killed, and, and 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 I don't know who's standing up for them. But I did see something. You know, there was a, something in a, a video from New York from the subway system where a young woman was had her hair being grabbed, mm. and she was sitting there. You know, the the, the guy grabs her hair as if she's a piece of meat or something that he controlled and she just mouthed the words help me help me yeah. you you know that one and right. i thought i thought and no one stood up it was like a kitty Gen- genovese thing no one stood stood to defend her right and she was saying help me and That's, i thought that you see that in every city in every city yeah, you know, transit systems are really such the the petri dish where you see all of these interactions, all of these forces and changes in decision making in sort of writ large um, for what you see outside of the transit system being played out. Um, here in New York, one of the problems that we're coming up against is that uh, we stopped, you know, in Manhattan, we stopped uh, prosecuting fare evasion, I, I think, in 20. 18, 20, um, something like that. Jumpers, and, right. Yeah, turnstile jumpers, you know, oh, it's so mean. Like, what's the big yeah, deal? Let them go. Yeah, let them um, and and of course, you know, it, it's the people who commit, first of all, uh, the people who commit crime in the subway are you know, like none of them are paying two dollars and seventy-five cents on the way in. So so right there, you are um, already losing the best opportunity to keep out of the subway, a population of people who are going to be predators within the yeah. subway. And you're also giving them a strong message. This is not a policed place. This is not a place where you have to follow <laughs> the rules. Nothing's going to happen to you. Um, and, and I think it's easy. And again, you know, to your question about where, how did the media take such a weird turn away from uh, realistically depicting what's happening. Um, you know, it's so easy to, to just think, well, it's not a big deal. Um, but then, you know, we see there's such an astronomical rise in crime of all types, especially violent crime um, in the subways. We've had, uh, I think, eight murders a year in the New York City subways in the last two years, whereas before that, we had an average of 1.4 or something for the last, for the decade prior. And that's with uh, you know, half the ridership. Um, Millions it's, it's, of rides. Yeah. Right. It's it's incredible. Um, and and part of you know what the, the the sort of boiling tension in these narratives right now is that 
uh, the, there's been a change in policy from the mayor, from the police department to start, you know, flooding more cops into the subways, which is good and, and mandating that they start to be more proactive. And, and, you know, if someone is smoking K2 on the car to, to say, Hey, you know, stop that. Um, or if someone is loitering in the, in the system to say, Hey, this is a place you get from point A to point B and then you get out, you know, this isn't a place to, to hang about. It's not safe. Um, but even with this additional policing, we're still seeing huge amounts of transit crime. And, and, and so people are saying, well, then police really are useless. We told you all along. But, you know, if these people aren't going to get prosecuted and if the type of people yeah. who, you know, com- who pull someone's hair in the subway, who slash someone, which are repeat offenders, if they're never getting held in and there's never any consequences to their crime, you can have, you know, a trillion police officers in the subway system. People are still going to keep offending because, you know, at the end of the day, so what if they get arrested? Like, it's right. not going to have a, a huge impact on their lives. Well, they know this, so it's a golden era for career criminals. And then, you know, of course, media keeps pushing them, you know, informing them and making sure they're well aware that it's going to be very easy because, hey, no one's coming for you. Hannah, no one is coming for you. Mm-hmm. No one's coming. And don't get on the subway until, you know, what? we're going to have to have. <laughs> My kids take the subway every day to school. Listen, there's going to be a Bernard (laughs) Getz situation. And reporters are going to run around saying the same ones who, uh, you know, want to be criminal justice reporters. They will say, who is Bernard Getz? What was that? (laughs) Haven't they seen the Law and Order episode based on it? (laughs) No, no, I've I've missed all that. I guess that's where they get their legal theory from television. (laughs) Um, Anyway, Hannah... E. Myers, Director of po- Policing and Public Safety for the Manhattan Institute, now writing, at least occasionally, and I hope again soon, for John Cass News and many other publications. Thanks for being here with us yeah, today. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for really. having me. This was a delight, and I'm, I'm honored to be on your show. Thank you, Hannah. So for Hannah E. Myers of the Manhattan Institute, former investigator, terrorism investigator in New York, and now a director of public policy, policing, criminology for the Manhattan Institute, writer of many, many articles, and really uh, interesting and bubbly personality as well. You know, she not like one of these... uh, didn't sound like John Cass like some, <laughs> or some like Jeff Carlin, right? You know, two we could have if we put hey, how you doing? Yeah, no, sports co- sports coats on us. We yeah, could but... we could pose as you know coppers, I guess, with the, <laughs> with the sarcasm in her voice. And she's right. and she's just uh, yeah, I really Very like that. And for Jeff Carlin, WGN executive producer. Going through those emails, yeah. trying to select the sponsorship, and there's like some competition for this. So I'm really <laughs> excited about it. Because you know all the interest. Because as I said in the we said in the monologue, Jeff, you know what the goal is get Jeff Carlin paid. Okay, <laughs> and for me, yeah, and for me, John Cass, husband, father, Greek Orthodox Christian, and. Chief executive or whatever it I am, editor in chief of johncastnews.com. We're going back to the two week, two podcasts a week. We're done. People are downloading us like crazy. I guess yep. we're up to 
30,000 plus downloads each episode and we're going to continue so and we're going to have we've got a lot mayor elections coming up uh, primary stuff we got primaries uh, we got the governor's race yeah Um, there's uh, all sorts of stuff fun stuff wear hats everybody in (laughs) illinois wear hats because the 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 political ads you're gonna have to keep it all out of your your hair (laughs) join us again next time won't you for another edition of the Chicago Way podcast on WGN+.